Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, I'm Lane Stratton, I'll be hosting your podcast this afternoon, great to have you on board. Today we talk to a remarkable woman who comes from a remarkable family that has been through and is still battling a life-changing moment in their child's life. The impact of this one moment has been devastating for all concerned. She's going to tell us what happened, the consequences and her suicide lived experience as a result. It's really challenging stuff, folks, and to listen to as a parent makes it even more challenging. I hope it impacts you as powerfully as it impacted me. Our guest today on Rose's Radio is Imbi. Folks, today we're with Imbi. Imbi, great to have you on Roses Radio today. Thanks for finding the time. Thank you for having me, Lane. Awesome. Hey, um, take us back in time. What a great story you have to tell us today. Take us back in time to when everything was perfect in the house. Uh, Perfect is a word that makes me smile because I don't relate to perfect, but I guess I relate to just okay, just normal with the ups and downs of everyday life. Three kids, three well-tracking kids, um, lots of friends, a really lovely extended family and a life that was going along. And then that life changed and has remained changed and continues to change. 
um, for the last six years and it's been a ravaging, awful life, to be honest, for the last six years. So back um, prior to uh, the trauma that occurred in your family, prior to that six-year period, um, the kids were well-adjusted. Uh, they were in they um, were typical all... schools, a typical suburban family. Uh, we were a typical suburban family. Um, we were fortunate enough and our two older kids had were both on scholarships um, at a wonderful school, a private school in the east. Um, our youngest son had finished grade six at the same school um, and we were in difficult financial circumstances. So for many reasons, we decided to remove Jonah from that school and send him to another school um, to start year seven. He was our third child, so we thought that was a good decision to let him find his own way um, and start over. The other two um, kids, one was finishing and going to university and the other one was in senior years. So that's when it all unfolded and our younger son commenced year seven um, at a school that to this day I have no appropriate words um, to describe that school, um, but it is what it is. Tell me about Jonah when he started, and the reason we're going to talk about Jonah is because he's a central character in this story. Tell me about Jonah before he started Year 7 at this particular school. What was he like? Um, Jonah, before he started at um, the school where he got so hurt, uh, was a um, charismatic um, young man. He was 12. He was a bit um, ballsy in some respects. He was a really good talker, like his mum. Um, he won a public speaking competition. He was um, sports house captain in his year level. He had friends. He had a good life. Um, he was happy to move school and start again um, at, at a new school, although he went with not knowing anyone um, or there was one boy he knew and he was going into an environment in a very different school um, and he was coming from a very caring, nurturing school. So that's when all the cards started to fall. You describe it as the cards started to fall. What happened in Year 7 at school? In Year 7 for Jonah, um, the second week at the said school was a camp. Um, we reflect a lot, Lane, looking back, and Jonah, like all kids, makes mistakes, and we were, both Jonah and Trevor and myself were new to the school. We were new to that school's community, and we all tried really hard to fit in. Um, Jonah now says that he was attracted to the cool kids, um, the cool kids that he wanted to be part of, the very sporty kids. It's a very um, sporty school it's been described we jokingly or half jokingly describe it as St Brutus's for boys um, and he went in probably trying to be cool um, he's not very cool he's got some wonderful characteristics he's um, dramatic he loves drama he loves music but he aligned himself he, he probably was just trying to find his feet Lane and he went to a camp um, quite happily um, it was the second week of camp so very quickly went to a year seven getting to know you camp he was gone for three days when we picked him up from that camp he was unrecognizable um, it gives me goosebumps to talk about it and to even think about it but he was broken and it's only now in the years since um, we have found out some of what went down at that camp 
um, to Jonah and it has been told to us by many therapists that he's been under that the horror of what was done to him on the camp and what he had to deal with, um, he still hasn't unpacked and he is now 18. But that was just the start of Jonah's journey at that school? That was the start. So I know I spoke about this to you, Lane, in that Jonah is our third child and Trevor and I were parents um, with our other two and with Jonah that when there was an issue at school, we would um, we were those parents that would always blame our kids first. We weren't the parents that have had the perfect child syndrome, I call it, whereby we would think, oh, you know, what's people doing to you? We would always question our kids first. When Jonah came home from camp, though, he was so brittle, so damaged, we straight away went to the school, did all the things that we knew to do. We wrote emails, we asked why, we questioned Jonah, who simply just kept saying, I don't want to talk about it. Um, we let the school know our concerns and we continued on, albeit watching. Um, as time went through, we now know that Jonah kept getting incredibly bullied. There was a dishy made up about him which was incredibly hurtful um, that he coped with and during that time he just... Every time we complained or went to the school about how he wasn't making friends, he wasn't fishing in... He kept telling us that it would be getting worse um, and the school handled it so badly he then at many points begged Trevor and I to never tell the school anything again and that he was going to just put his head down and try and cope and to his credit, Lane, he tried to cope. Um, he then came home one day and he told me that things were much better. He was in the musical at the school and a much older boy um, in year 12 had befriended him and Jonah was really pleased and I remember questioning him and saying, 18 or that boy's in year 12, that's weird. And I remember Jonah saying to me, he's really cool mum, um, He's gay, he's openly gay, and but he really likes me and it's going to be fine. And my alarm bells didn't really ring. I just thought, that's okay, he's got a friend. So things improved for a little while. There was another camp. Jonah was exhibiting some strange behaviours at home um, and wanting to uh, groom his eyebrows and um, he talked about different... just had... had uh, different comments that were a little bit concerning but again we just hoped that everything would be okay. We now know and it was identified to us that that man was grooming our younger son and Jonah was a perfect victim. He was being groomed for sex, he was being um he was so isolated from his peer group and he was so desperate to fish in with anyone that he was the perfect victim. Um, in the ensuing months and even the next year when the man that groomed, the young man that groomed my son had left the school, Jonah's behaviour and the effects on what had happened psychologically was, were playing out at home. He was, in a therapist's words, bringing the war home. He was becoming increasingly dysfunctional. He was becoming very violent. We didn't know what to do with him. He was becoming unrecognisable. Um, and shouting and it was behaviour that was just out of the box. 
Um, we now know through much disclosure work and horror that that grooming had actually culminated in Jonah being raped at school under the school's watch and even worse slain the perpetrator of that crime um, that caused Jonah to try to take his own life on one occasion that we witnessed but on other occasions that we did not witness um, had caused such damage to our son. So for six years, um, Jonah has had to live with the trauma of what happened to him and the family has had to live with the subsequent behaviours that are attached to that. Tell me what it's like being part of the house or what it's been like for the house over the last few years in particular. Our life... I described it on radio, another radio, um, on the ABC lane as living with a grenade and Jonah really objects to me using that expression but it's, and I apologise to Jonah for that, but it is the most perfect description because Jonah as a result of what happened to him and uh, with living with acute depression at times, anxiety at other times, he's constantly in fight or flight because that was his life at school and so it has developed into complex PTSD and what that's like is a grenade. There are triggers that happen, there are memories that happen of the event and the triggers can come out of nowhere. Um, it can be a look or a comment or it can be under stress. Um, it's a, almost contagious. I can't say the word disease, but for a family to live with that, we all have it now. My husband and I have got that too. We have big reactions to small things. We have a beautiful young man who I admire and I'm holding in my heart every second and hoping that he wants and chooses to live every day and often he will say and present as someone who doesn't want to and I'm scared of that every day so that's what it's like living with that. He's told you on a number of occasions that he doesn't want to live? Absolutely and we uh, we see that and it's terrifying um, and it's also numbing because you we have over times with violence, with um, suicidality, with threats to take his own life and um, enacted everything that we possibly can with police, with um, private hospital admissions, with public hospital admissions, with cat teams, with therapists, with everything. But at the end of the day, the terror and the fear is that Jonah's reason to live and to wake up and to try and fight the demons that he now faces and to recover from what happened to him and for us as a family to also recover and make sense of an awful event. We're not special. Other families get bullied, they get hurt, other um, people get sexually assaulted and you've got to find a way um, to cope um, and to stay alive, actually, and to have hope. It's about having hope. And what's your experience being? You mentioned a whole bunch of people that you've uh, reached out to, like, you know, cat teams and psychologists and counsellors and psychiatrists. And how has it been trying to navigate the 
the complexity of the mental health system for a child who is now so damaged as a result of the trauma they experienced? It's ravaging, Lane. It's terribly difficult. And my husband, Trev, who is amazing, he describes it as not even really a system. There are some astonishing individuals and um, organisations out there, but there is no doubt in our mind um, that the mental health system in Victoria, which is our experience, and even in Australia, because we have accessed as much help as we can to our capacity, is so underfunded, so under-resourced and is in dire need of um, so much more big stuff, which probably doesn't sound like a, you know, um, a good description, but for PTSD particularly, for adolescents particularly, um, and in the areas that we live, there is nothing. And it's, I'm preaching to the converted. And we, Trevor and I both believe that to make sense and to add value to others for the life that we've led and the differences we want to make. We want to put our efforts and our energies into improving those services and those systems so that other families have got capacity to find effective care for their suicidal children or for themselves or for family intense care at the worst possible times because there is no family care. And it might be Jonah's trauma and Jonah's six years that he has had but as the people that love and care for him the system needs to care for a whole family and listen to a whole family. So you felt quite isolated by the system as a as a carer as a mother absolutely as a, as a family absolutely and hopeless you know I like to think that we have um done a good job in accessing everything possible and yet the sense of failure and the sense of hopelessness that we feel is acute and for me personally when the help that you're seeking doesn't land effectively or you are stopped accessing it because you have reached your limit or there is no more funding to access or you are not listened to within the system about um, your safety or your son's safety, that brings on such desperation and um, and hopelessness, which is also the situation I then found myself in. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So um, you found yourself completely overwhelmed by the situation um, and that led to your own suicide ideation. Uh, it did. And I still find it really difficult, Lane, to even understand how I got there. Um, but there I got. Uh, and I. Do you mean you found it difficult to understand? I mean, anyone listening to this podcast will say, how could it be possible that you don't understand how you ended up there? I mean, there are things less traumatic that often drive people to suicide ideation. You've had a complete and utter upheaval and a trauma in your house. How is it not possible that you, you know, that you wouldn't have ended up potentially there? I guess that, um, well, I have that insight now. I have that insight now. And I think um, I've changed so many of my perceptions and thoughts about suicide and it's a gift for me now to know that my vulnerability took me to a place where 
even though I know that I have friends and I certainly have the most astonishing um, mum and sister and people that would hold me, um, there was a point where it felt so hopeless and I was so unable to access any help that I simply didn't want to live for one more minute. The reason that's hard for me, Lane, is that it was really shocking to be there. I understand that as a family we've had more than our fair share perhaps Um, uh, and yet I still feel lucky we've still got Jonah and I'm still here and I'm here to tell our story and I'm here to um, hopefully offer other people hope um, because I have hope now but there but I am still shocked that I was driving and we had had, I'm going to say one with a lot, like a hamburger with a lot. We'd had a weekend where I was fighting with my husband. Um, A therapist once said to me that under trauma, everyone becomes more of who they are. And unfortunately, that's not our best. That's often our worst. So under trauma and acute stress, you like to think that you're really going to be more supportive and more understanding and more empathetic. But sometimes the opposite is true. And I have the most extraordinary partner um, and husband in Trevor, but we're very different communicators. And we had a weekend where everything fell apart. Um, There was incredible violence at home with Jonah. Um, I will call it a PTSD explosion. We had police come to our house. They can be fantastic. They usually are fantastic, but they are hampered by a system whereby they can really do nothing um, for a family like ours where someone is suffering from acute mental illness at worst other than support. Um, And we just had no options. There was no hospital admission available. Um, In the private system, there are such roadblocks in that if you're not under a psychiatrist attached to a private hospital, even with private funding, you can't get into that said hospital. So there was just nothing there. And we, uh, in the middle of a very ravaging and difficult legal fight to get justice for Jonah, um, we're coming to the end of that fight. But that weekend, um, there were roadblocks there and there were issues there. And I just could not see one more reason, Lane, to take another breath. And the most upsetting and the thing I've grappled with the hardest is that for a moment in time, I didn't want to take another breath. And I have a whole heap of reasons to keep living. And yet for one minute, I or not one minute, many minutes, and that's when I reached out to Lifeline. And I do remember my mind racing, thinking, who will I ring? And going through lots of people, lots of um, people, my daughter, all sorts of people I could have rung. But I didn't want to bother anyone, Lane. I didn't want to bother anyone. And even now, I can really relate to the fact that it's easy to reach out if you're okay. And it's incredibly difficult to reach out when you're not okay. Um, I'm aware of that now and I often and sometimes it almost amuses me and people who know me well now will see me withdraw so I know that that vulnerability is still there. Um, Reaching out to the crisis counsellor, I had never done that. I felt that I'd tried everything else and it was a little bit, I'm just going to call and see if they can give me a reason. I was looking for a reason. 
So you called and you spoke to um, someone on the other end of the phone. Do you remember anything about that conversation? I do. I remember her voice and I. she gave me a name, which was interesting because I believe now they're not meant to. It doesn't matter whether it was her real name or not. And the only one of the things I remember most vividly is what I can't even specifically remember what she said, but I know how she made me feel. Um, so she, I, re, I do remember her saying something along the lines of, Imbi, you just sound so tired. And I was, and I felt understood so that when I reflect, Lane, she gave me understanding and she gave me a connection because it is about tribes and connection and for me it's about being understood um, and I'm so glad that I reached out to anyone that crisis counsellor because that's what you need or that's what I need I need to be understood not agreed with but just understood or just sat with but the terror and the worry um is being able to recognise that you need that and then reaching out for the help. And I know it's out there and I'm really proud and so grateful that I reached out. Does it surprise you that we don't get that same amount of support from our kind of psychosocial environment, our, our family and friends who we would, we would think would be the first point of call, you know, whether it's parents or whether it's sisters and siblings and or whether it's cousins and aunties and uncles, and you'd, you'd think, and friends, you'd think that we'd, we'd have that network around us that would protect us in that moment. But yet for you, it actually felt like you were completely isolated and the only person you could talk to was a stranger. Absolutely. And I felt like such a burden. And it's incredibly unfair and unfair on all those networks and people that I know I have, Lane, who love and support me because... People need to give those connections a chance and I, I'm i not going to say ashamed because no one should be ashamed of getting there. I just didn't want to bother anyone anymore. I'm acutely aware and our journey, if you like, has been years and there's enormous compassion fatigue. I feel it myself. Um, we've had some wonderful friends who have stayed the course uh, with us um, and family who are extraordinary. But everyone, you know, a, a gorgeous friend of mine, um, Julie, who you know, Lane, she often talks about her own experiences being the Grim Reaper. We've just had drama upon drama upon trauma and it's exhausting. And sometimes I don't want to know about it, much less burden it burden that on anyone else so a stranger is easier mm. for me a stranger was easier and I loved the anonymity and I loved being able to say you might all think I'm okay and I think women I'm not going to say women I only know that because I'm a woman and I'm in my 50s and you just hold people up and you present as if you're okay so it's the shame of that as well I didn't want to reach out to anyone I knew I wanted to reach out to someone I didn't know and since that moment did you talk to anyone else about the fact that you were that close to making an attempt on your life or did you kind of internalize that I internalized it I've spoken to my husband about it now but that's 
that took me months and months. Um, the person I reached out to, and which may surprise people listening, was actually Jonah. Um, I wrote about my experience and it was very important to me that I shared that story with Jonah um, and that went really well. He um, held me in his arms and we had a moment that I will hold in my heart for always and um, to other people, no, I haven't. So this is my story being brave to say and I Will it be shocking? It may well be. Um, but that's okay, Lane, because it's really important to be brave and say, I got there. And that's really scary. And please know that if that's you, it's okay. Um, but reach out. Please reach out. Mm. Who would you advise them to reach out to? Would it be, first and foremost, close friends and family, or would it be... Yeah, the, the value that you had, which was a, a you know the anonymity of reaching out to someone over a telephone, where there were no real consequences for you at a personal level. Um, I think everyone's different, and I'm loath to really say what anyone should do. For me, the anonymity. Although I would have really liked the follow up. To be honest, I would have really okay. liked the follow up. I think the stigmas are really being reduced and I can see that in action and I've been incredibly lucky in this space and with Roses and with Lifeline to hear and access other stories and to feel very um to to, to make it feel very humanized and and very normal mm -hmm. actually very normal and um but also very individual everyone's story and everyone's straws that can lead them to that path are um, very unique. I'm very aware, though, of the vulnerability, and in a sense, it's made me hyper vigilant, Lane, not just of myself, um, but also everyone else. And I don't know, um, and that can be very concerning, and I don't know that that's helpful either. So I'm certainly acutely anxious about how my husband's tracking. Um, and there's a panic because, as well as the relief of perhaps getting to a really shocking point of, of seriously contemplating taking my own life um, and then recovering from that um, is also the worry that that can happen again. Since talking about your lived experience, you've met uh, a few other ladies and formed a little bit of a bond, the, the group of four. And, um, What's that been like to uh, to be able to share your experience so openly with them and to feel uh, the support that they give you and, and how they wrap around you emotionally? Uh, the tribe, my beautiful tribe. So we um, perhaps a little bit arrogantly but proudly call ourselves the Roses Quartet. There's four of us. Uh, four very different women with very different stories and um, it has been extraordinary, Lane, and life-saving. And we are fascinated, the four of us, in that it feels like we've known each other forever. Um, in this space, you become very... Um, the information is so incredibly personal and you feel like you've known someone for a very long time and it's just a connection. It is just acceptance and I have sat within that th that space with those women and if I've been crying or if I've been laughing or if I've just been whatever there is 
unconditional support and there is also no judgment Um, but everyone does their best and I think it's very hard actually being someone's friend for a long time um, watching them go through a really difficult situation and it's hard to be that person's family you know we have very high expectations on ourselves but on our friends and our family. And that would be a bit of advice to just go easy. We're all doing our very best um, and they're doing their very best as well. Important to forgive ourselves and really important to um, just forgive everyone else if they feel, you know, if you feel they're letting you down because you're probably letting them down as well. You talked about it being life-saving. What did you mean when you said... That, that having those relationships with those women that were essentially strangers to you up until probably a couple of years ago, maybe, was it? Was it oh, even it, it was a year ago. ago, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, life-saving because we found our voices mm-hmm. and we found our, uh, Julie says, the tribe and it's about being able to... Um, not be anything you might be in your past, but just be who you are in that present day and feeling connected and feeling safe. Um, And I think it's that. I think it's that. And having a common um, interest is not the right word. A common passion and uh, a common hope. And if you haven't got the hope on a day, knowing how to find that hope again and how by listening to other people's stories gives you the um, understanding of your own story Um, and that is just such a privilege to to listen and to learn and 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 I found that life-saving as well. Well I think um, all of those lovely ladies that you talk about, um, who, whom I also know, um, would also say that um, you've given them um, enormous support as well, Imbi. Um, so two questions that we often ask just to finish off our Roses Radio podcast. The first is, what do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide? Um, I think it is changing. I think it's the stigma. And as I said, I had all sorts of different thoughts about suicide that I don't have anymore and I'm glad about that, I think. What's, one, what's an example of that? Um, can you think of one off the top of your head? Oh, I can and I'm, I'm ashamed to say it. I, I remember many, many years ago as a young woman in my 20s hearing about a mother with children that took her own life and I remember having the thought and articulating it, how selfish, how could she possibly do that? Um it's um, that thought, that is a huge one for me um, because it's all in the timing. It is in the timing and it is, I guess, the recognising of when you're going down that path and stopping um, and, and getting those supports in place before um, it is irrecoverable and just doing everything that you can for yourself. Self-care. Um, I listened to um, another man who I met um, at Roses at a workshop and we were talking about self-care and how he can feel energised and so much better having his voice, telling his story, making a difference. And I very much related to that because 
self-care is incredibly important, but that also looks very different for every person. So what is the message that you'd like to get out there that's unique to your story that anyone who's listening who may at the moment be dealing with suicide in their life needs to hear from you? To just trust your instincts and to stay really close. Um, Back yourself and back your judgment with people that if they are saying, if a husband or a wife or a partner is saying, I'm fine, but they're presenting that they're not fine, dig deeper and so stay close, dig deeper, don't judge and just be alert to that and if it's you're the person which I'm guilty of I'm fine I'm doing okay um, check yourself and ask is this helpful because I know better now Lane I know better now to say you know I'm not doing really well Um, and my hope is that I will keep doing that and also other people struggling that think, oh, no, look, I would never get there. Just be aware that when those straws come, they can come when you don't expect them and you might be carrying a real burden and then something will just come that might be too much So, and rec- to, to, to recognise that. Imbi, it's been great to have a chat today. Thank you so much for um, being a part of Rose's Radio. The... Your story is amazing. There are so many people that are going to relate to that. Um, your, the capacity of your family to endure um, is incredible. It's been incredibly traumatic what you've been through. You're a strong and courageous woman. I know that there are times when you probably doubt that about yourself, but uh, your friends and your family, um, on reflection at some point down the track, will see the strength of your character and your capacity to be able to talk about this so openly and so so honestly and we're very grateful that you've chosen roses radio to be the vehicle to uh, to get this story out there and to help many others who might be living through something of a similar nature thanks for coming on thank you lane i really appreciate that In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub, through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300 411 461. 
Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience. <laughs>